Hello, and welcome to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my very special guest, John McKinnon, researcher, author, and former message believer. And as we discussed last week, about five years, a very critical component to William Branham and the historical research that we've put together on the website. Last week, we covered a large portion of the podcast was about William Branham's connection to very sinister figures in in the revivals, including white supremacy leaders and all of that backstory. Um, But this week, we're getting into the doctrinal issues. And as I said last week, I'm extremely excited to get into this with you. So, John, if you could um, tell... Tell anybody who didn't hear last week a little bit about yourself, and let's uh, let's dive into some doctrinal issues that surround the message of William Branham. Thank you, John. It's good to be here again and, and do another one of these episodes with you. Um, yeah, I I would say that um, you know doctrine matters to me, uh, and truth matters to me. It's all it's always mattered uh, ever since I became a Christian back in 1985. Uh, you know, I was searching for truth. I would say I was, you know, very much a novice in the scriptures. I didn't know a lot, except I knew that Jesus died for me. But um, around when I went to college in 1985, you know, I, I, I was a new Christian and I encountered multiple groups. Uh, I ended up, uh, as I wanted more truth, I ended up migrating to the charismatic ranks uh, that were there at college, you know, and it seemed to be a wonderful thing. Uh, and a lot of the things I'm embracing today, I actually actually uh, stopped listening to when I was in college because I felt like, well, if they're not going to allow for gifts of the Spirit or whatever, then I'm not going to listen to them. But I come to find out after, you know, 30, 40 years, you know, I've kind of mellowed out a little bit and I can embrace as long as a person is preaching truth, there might be some things I can't agree with them on. But if, if there's if they're preaching truth, you know, there's a lot of things I can embrace. We can agree upon, especially the key things. Uh, so anyway, by by 1986, I was had encountered the message. And and since I had studied a little bit about the Catholic Church and uh, had heard, I've been reading Chick publications. I guess if you knew about that uh, organization, how hard they are on the Catholic Church. So I fell right in line. It just kind of fell into place with me. And I felt like, well, this is the word. And with no research tools at the time, with no uh, internet, you know, you can imagine there's no way to find out any other thing other than what people are telling you, uh, the resources that you have available that you can buy, the tapes, uh, and everybody you can talk to that may have even heard about William Branham. Uh, that's that's all you have. and And there was no one that could tell me and show me by the scriptures that what he was saying was wrong, because uh, you know William Branham had a a way about him. Because uh, none of these doctrines that he preached were unique. You know, baptism in the name of Jesus Christ is not unique to him. Uh, that was already going on, and he was uh, it, Roy Davis was doing that before they met. You know, in his church. So a lot of people like to think that some of the things he preached was very unique. He had a revelation from God. And, and, and then they see it in the Bible. They said, Oh, uh, he was the only one with that revelation. Well, no, uh, it was already being done. 
So that that's true on the majority, if not all of his uh, revelations. And especially, I guess I can make mention of it right now, the, the great revelation of the seven seals. We learned that that was Clarence Larkin's revelation. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah, so all he did was repeat, maybe with a little here and a little there from other sources, but all he did was repeat that and called it uh, a revelation from angels from heaven uh, that came to him day by day to tell him what was the truth. So so we find that, you know, the doctrines that he preached was really not unique. Uh, but at the time, with no uh, investigative research tools, without a lot of painstaking going to libraries and so forth, uh, you're just too busy to do that. Uh, you just have to take at face value what people are telling you. Yeah. So, yeah. As, and so as I, uh, that's why you stay with the message for so many years until you begin researching it on your own. But as I began to minister, uh, say around 2010, you know, my first few messages were you know, staying dead on with the messages, preaching, you know, a lot of quotes, uh, doing that. Uh, but then as I, as you study salvation and what, 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 what do you really believe? You know, you realize that the, the, the way you have to approach salvation is this three-stage approach. Well, you know, that. how do you know what stage you're in? You know, and if you have to be fully sanctified before you can even receive the Holy Spirit, how do you know what state, how do you know when you get there? Yeah. So, so a, lot, a lot of that began not to make sense anymore. And so it got me really thinking. But I wrote this book because of all the many things that uh, I had came across that, that I felt like needed to be told uh, so that people could study it on their own. I didn't write this as a definitive tell-all, be-all uh, book, but just so that it, it hopefully would spur people on to further study so they can discover on their own what the Word is saying and then compare it truly with what you know, William Brown said. So in the very first uh, chapter in that book, you know, if you, in Jude 3, uh, we're exhorted by the Scripture to uh, write that we earnestly contend for the faith that was delivered once unto the saints. So so that earnestly contend, we need to fight with all this in us to contend. So, you know, my question would be, why, why do message ministers, why do churches have a problem with you being like a Berean and going after the Scripture and saying, let's find out what it says and let's compare it to what our ministers are telling us. That's what we need to do. And, and that's what I encourage all message believers to do is take what the minister is saying, compare it with Scripture, and and take what the message says and compare it with Scripture. And, and then I, I think I'm only earnestly contending. I'm only doing what the Bible says, earnestly contending for the faith. Because, you know, for, for Brother Brown to say, well, what the apostles had in their day does not work in this day, that's a pretty bold claim, you know, because what he's telling you is that my word is the only thing that's going to work in this day. My message is the only thing that's going to work to get you into the rapture for salvation, to, to really, really believe you have the Holy Spirit is to believe my message. He just threw away 2000 years of church history there when he said the word of the apostles will not work in this day. What, what is he really talking about there? So uh, that that's really bothersome. Uh, and basically, Brother Brown's message just upends Orthodox Christianity and turns it on its head because he ignores, he, he gives lip service to prior ministers like Martin Luther, but 
he's only he has never scratched the surface about what Martin Luther was all about, about what he came out of, what he preached, because uh, sure Martin Luther was not one hundred percent correct, but a lot of things Martin Luther said and did were were absolutely correct. So you have to take, like you do any minister, what did Martin Luther say, compare it with Scripture. So that's that's all I figure I'm doing in this book. Absolutely. And for our listeners who are on the audio-only feeds, the book is Defending the Truth, Comparing William Branham's Doctrine with Scripture. And what, what John McKinnon is describing here, there are multiple ways in which to study doctrine in Scripture. And for the casual person who is just attending church and wanting to learn more about God, you just simply read for yourself and you read and study. But for those who are trapped in in a religion that you question, well, this might be destructive or this might be a cult, there are different approaches to it. One is, like John said and like the book says, comparisons. So you compare what is the theology that I'm being taught with what is somebody else who we know has sound doctrine or even just going back to the source, what what is being taught? How do I compare that with the Bible? Sometimes that's difficult for people because that approach takes a, a lot of Bible reading and studying. You can find summaries uh, on, the, I think, Bible Gateway has some good study tools. You can find some sources that help you with this. <clears throat> but then the one that the, the approach that I take, which is critical examination, it's even deeper than this. And I get accused of hatred because of this. They say, you hate William Branham, but they don't understand the process. And the process of critical examination is that you study other people who you know are the villains to Christianity, and you understand what it is they're teaching, what is their framework, their foundation, and you go back into the comparison by comparing, okay, here's something that we know is false, and here's the fruits of that false doctrine. And here is the, you know, in my case, it was William Branham. For you, it might be some other cult leader. Here's the doctrine taught by, by the person that trained me. How does it compare with this evil doctrine? And in the case of Branham, as you know, almost, <laughs> almost every bad theology that you can study, you're going to find traces of it in the message. And yet, many of these things were taught as though they were the original truth. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll get, let you get back into your critique of the salvation in, in just a bit, but for me, the key element to all of this, it was the foundational doctrine. If you study what William Branham called serpent seed, Branham claims to have introduced this as a divine revelation from God and the ministers who are in the religion, they tout this as never heard before doctrine. William Branham introduced it by his angel or whatever is the thing that they say. And it came around 19, what was the date on that? 1950? 58. 58. Well, even William Branham himself says that he heard it in the church of the white supremacist leader, Roy E. Davis, and so he heard it before this. It's the two-seed or the dual-seed doctrine. And William Branham himself, years before, mentioned the seed, and he's talking about the two-seed doctrine. So even when he introduces it as a 
quote-unquote new revelation. He had already had this alleged revelation, and it came from white supremacy. So I began studying this doctrine in the early years, and you find that Irenaeus, who William Branham claimed was, you mentioned the seven church ages and the seven seals, Irenaeus, Branham claimed to have brought the original divine truth for as a church age. He was dispensationalist. And one of the things that Irenaeus condemned in his book or series called uh, Against Heresies, he was condemning Gnosticism and Jewish mysticism as heresy. And he says they're bringing forth the heresy that the serpent in the Garden of Eden mated with Eve. And I can't remember the exact phrase he used. But the very first Christian apologist, an apologist is somebody who's defending the Christian faith, the very first Christian apologist declared this as heresy centuries ago. And the idea that William Branham brought it new simply by studying other people with false doctrines and false teachings, you can find this woven all throughout white supremacy. One of the earliest the, you know, this, this dates all the way back to centuries ago, but one of the earliest in America is through Russell Kelso Carter. He published a book called The Tree of Knowledge in the year, I believe it was 1894. And in the book, he talks about the serpent having sex with Eve, and this was the original sin. Well, this developed into what is called Christian identity. And if you study that theme of the framework that was laid by Christian identity, you find this thing that William Branham is teaching and bringing forth as quote unquote divine revelation is what led to the race riots and led to the some very dark chapters in American history. So <clears throat> the point I'm building up to is, if you are studying the message for various different reasons, there's very, diff very different approaches to scriptural study. And the one that I recommend for somebody who's looking at a critical analysis is to study the bad guys. <laughs> you want to know what are the bad guys saying? Okay, how does that relate back to William Branham and what he is saying? And you'll find in many cases it's the same exact thing. It's the same foundation. And with that, I'll let you get back into the, <clears throat> to the study of the salvation aspect. Yeah, I'll get back to that. Um, but that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, Everyone needs to approach study with an open mind. Uh, you, you know, you don't need to close yourself off. And that's what message believers tend to do is they will not study anything on the opposite side. And without that broad picture, you know, you're only confined to, to, to that one thing and you're hearing the one voice and you're, you don't know where these things come from. So, so John, that's absolutely true. You really have to go to a variety of sources to really find the absolute uh, truth of it or where it comes from, you know, where it's leading to. Uh, and that's how that deception is so great because people aren't willing to do that. They're just in their minds. They can't. It's that cognitive distance uh, that you talk about. Uh, they just can't go there. Uh, their mind won't let them go there because they're in fear. But uh, it's funny you mentioned about Irenaeus because there is one chapter in my book uh I call it uh, the Doctrine of the Church Age Prophets. That's in chapter 9. And I, I point out, there's many times uh, Brother Branham would uh, change his mind after he's preached something. He would go back and change his mind and make it totally different. One example you brought out many uh, years ago 
was uh, he said there were five angels in the vision and sirs, what is the time? Or you know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then a few days later, he started changing it to five, maybe seven, and then finally it became seven because evidently somebody, either Lee Vale or whoever, came to him and said. You know, five doesn't mean the, doesn't match the number you need. You need seven, <laughs> <laughs> and so he just, you know, casually put that in there, and then finally it became seven. But he was very clear in the beginning; it was five. He counted them one, you know, in a pyramid shape, and it was five. So things like that. So the Church Age Prophets is very similar. When he preached the seals, I believe, and I put this in the book, I put his quotes in there about. He says the seven Church Ages messengers were prophets. You know. Because, of course, Paul, he said, was a prophet. He was a prophet. So all the rest of them had to be prophets. And the very next day, he comes back and says, no, uh, they were not prophets. They were only reformers. Because, of course, somebody must have pointed out to him, well, look at all the different doctrines they were preaching. And it's not what you're preaching. So you can't say they're prophets because the word of the Lord comes to the prophet, right? So that's, that's another example of how he changed his mind on things. So a funny story I have to tell. It wasn't me that found the five angels. What I do takes a lot of time. <laughs> I can't tell you the, the sheer number of hours that I spend doing this, <clears throat> but there are tasks that are repetitive. And when I first began this, I was having my wife help out because it was just overwhelming. There's so many things to go through. <clears throat> and we wanted to combine, we wanted to compile a spreadsheet of the things that William Branham said using the phrase, thus saith the Lord. Doctrinally speaking, you must understand this if you came from the message, because that statement means, thus saith the Lord, means God is now about to speak through me, and what I'm about to say to you is prophecy. And William Branham said it so many times that it became for people who were in the message, they don't even regard it as prophecy. They just say this was doctrinal teaching and it may, what do they call it, progressive revelation. It may mature over time. No, no, no. When he says this, this means God is about to speak and God knows there is no progressive revelation with God. God knows already. <clears throat> so my wife was compiling this list and the problem we ran into is that I can't remember how many thousands she hit before she said, I can't keep doing this. There are thousands of these quotes. <clears throat> and I, I had her do one pass. I was going to have her just list them out, you know, what are the tape indexes? And then I realized when there's so many, well, we need the actual quote that goes with it so that I can say, you know, examine this. And <laughs> she said, I'm done. <laughs> there's too much of this. <clears throat> but while going through this process, she discovered that he said five angels, and then she came to me. I'll, I'll never forget, I was downstairs. My other office used to be in, in another room over there, and <clears throat> I was studying, and she says, he introduced two angels. <laughs> and I was, I was like, what? <laughs> and she put together this little timeline, and um, I had it on the, other, the old website and the YouTube site that got taken down, but <clears throat> she realized very quickly that he was not only changing his thus saith the Lord phrases, he was also changing spiritual aspects of his ministry. And it's very problematic when you, anybody who wants to see was this guy a false prophet or not, just examine the things that he said thus saith the Lord and compare them with each other because they don't match. <laughs> they're, they're thus saith the Lord 
A, thus saith the Lord Z. I mean, a polar opposite, right? <clears throat> and that's the exercise that we went through to, <laughs> to come up with this five to seven angels. So something else I wanted to say, John, was, um, you know, if a person is a prophet, you know, you got uh, Leo and Gene making the tapes and possibly doing some edits on those tapes to keep out certain things. Uh, well, there's other portions that when a person says, thus saith the Lord, you would expect that that's God speaking. And then for him to get to the pulpit there in 1960, I believe it was, when he's preaching um, condemnation by representation, maybe. Uh, and he talks about, I'm reading from this paper, 1932, and he's referring to these prophecies that he had in 1932 or three. And he says, well, we're going to take these prophecies and hand them over to Leo and have him revise them and bring them up to date. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, bring, bring your prophecies up to date. I mean, are you going to rewrite them? Uh, you know, and that that's for him to say that on tape and for that to be captured and nobody to edit that out. I mean, that says a lot of people. You can't just brush that over and forget about it. He's talking about actually changing the prophecies. And then when you go to study those seven prophecies and you see how they've changed over time from what he said about Franklin Roosevelt to the time it made it in the church age book. And now he mentions Hitler as the one it's totally changed. And then I think believe the sign. And you may have pointed out that those seven prophecies became 11 prophecies. So it's, they're kind of all over the place. So you wonder, you know, is God really speaking or is, you know, what's happening there? So there's some strange things going on. And I think that people really need to take heed to that because, you know, Thus saith the Lord is a pretty serious statement. And like you said, he said it over a thousand times, I believe. So, you know, I put some of that in my book as well. And, and so, you know, getting back to my book, uh, the first couple of chapters, chapter one and chapter two, I wasn't planning to put those in there, but I kind of thought back, you know, I'll, I'll just throw something in there about water baptism and about, you know, uh, the Godhead real quickly. And I, I wrote those chapters very quickly kind of hurriedly, and I just typed them off the top of my head, basically, and looked up a few things on the internet to throw in there. But but I didn't, I won't try to define what the doctrine should be. I was just trying to say, here is what, you know, Trinitarians is saying. Here's what Oneness is saying. Now you go study on your own and you figure out, you know, you know figure out what you want to believe about the Godhead. Uh, because really, uh, you know, William Branham would take like the Trinitarians and accuse them of things they weren't guilty of. He accused them of believing in three gods over and over again. So in our heads as message believers, that's what we think Trinitarianism is, is three beings or three gods. Well, that's not what it is at all. And, and really, the Godhead is a very complicated subject. It took hundreds of years to even develop a statement on it. So that's how complicated it is to even define you know, the God of the scripture. And in fact, our, our human knowledge is incapable of doing it, you know, adequately, but we do it the best we can. And that's really all I was trying to point out in this chapter. So I know there's some going to be offended. I already had one person offended at how I wrote the chapter. But I won't write and say I'm, uh, the Trinity is correct or oneness is correct. I was writing it to say, here's what they're saying. Here's what, you know, William Branham said. And William Branham even endorsed Trinity early on, saying the the Holy Spirit was the third person of the Trinity. 
Uh, so if you don't really know what the doctrine is really saying and how they stated it, uh, it's easy to make accusations, easy to make quick uh, conclusions that are really unfounded. So really your foundation is pretty shaky. And that's why I, I wrote that so people would be encouraged to go back and study. Uh, the second chapter was on water baptism. And my, my conclusion on that is that, you know, ever how you're baptized, as long as you're coming on the basis of your belief in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and that he forgave your sins and you're repenting, uh, the act of baptism, it's not the words that you say. It's the act of baptism. You're coming on the authority that Jesus gave you to be baptized after you profess faith, you know, in Jesus Christ. So it's really up to the person if they want to be baptized in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's fine. Uh, if they want to be baptized in, in the name, that's fine too. Uh, whatever your conscience is telling you to do, you do it. Uh, but I'm not going to condemn the, the thousands and millions of Christians that are baptized in the name of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, William Branham had a way of taking things like that and making such an issue of them that he, he in his sermons, if you listen to his sermons, a lot of times he'll go back to those things. He'll go back to Trinity. He'll go back to water baptism as a way of condemning everybody else and so that you can believe his message is the truth. Those are the only two things he usually points to, that and probably uh, the holiness of dress standards. Um, so really, in the end, it's up to the candidate being baptized. Okay, I want to be baptized uh, using the titles, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or I want to be baptized using the name so that's really the, the, the ultimate thing of that. So I, again, I don't, I'm not telling you what is the truth. I'm telling you, you know, use your conscience as a guide, study the scriptures, and come to your own conclusion. You know, it, it's odd because I'm one of the few message believers that actually read the Bible, and I read it over and over uh, constantly. I, I never, <clears throat> I didn't until after I read left the message. I didn't read it from cover to cover. After I left the message, I did this. I lost count. It was probably 10 or 15 times. But in the message, I've read it continually, every night, every day, during the day. <clears throat> and what's really odd is that, like you said, William Branham said some very false things about the people that were his target of hatred. And he was heavily against the Catholic Church because that was a white supremacy agenda. And he was against Trinitarianism because he was saying that was part of what came out of the Catholic Church. Yet, like you said, he himself was <laughs> supporting the Trinity. <clears throat> and the funny part for me is I believed what most Trinitarians believe while I was in the message, and yet I condemned them if they said they were Trinitarian. I'll never forget getting in one of my first jobs as I think I was 16 years old. I got in a very heated argument with this another 16-year-old who was defending the Trinity, and he was describing what God was using actual Bible verses. I was describing how he was wrong using my set of Bible verses, and the conclusions both equaled each other. And then at the end, I'm like, I don't get it. You're still wrong because you're Trinitarian. <laughs> <laughs> but I believed that there were three gods and that the three gods were one because that's what William Branham said on specific recordings, and I had my favorite recordings. And so there, I, I had not yet identified the ones where he said, where he openly said, I, 
or he says, we who have accepted the persons of the Trinity. He says this. Instead, I had read the ones where he said, anybody who has accepted the persons of the Trinity, he alludes that they've taken the mark of the beast. So for me, I could never have reconciled that he accepted it and it was the mark of the beast. The conclusion is that he accepted the mark of the beast. I could never go with this. And what's really funny about all of this, the point I'm leading up to, when I began publishing the more recent critical information, we began working with many Pentecostal historians and ministers who were involved in the ministry of William Branham and the collective movement that was at that time called The Message, which was different than the message I grew up in. And as you know, there was this point at which many Pentecostals severed their ties to Branham. And not just one, but multiple ministers have told me that the reason for this is that William Branham, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, he had no issue going into a Trinitarian church and baptizing people, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, then going to a Pentecostal oneness church and and condemning people who did this. So the, the people who traveled with him from roadshow to roadshow, they would watch him just blast the Trinitarians and anybody who says the word person, then he himself is apparently, according to these people, baptizing in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the oneness people, they said, no, we can't deal with this because this is a dividing line in Christianity. You either believe one side or the other. You cannot believe both. Yes. So so the next book I want to write is on the Godhead itself and 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 uh, show that, you know, there is one statement he makes some, at some point saying, you know, about the word not working for this day of the apostles. And he says, we have something different. So... As I was saying in the last podcast, you know, a lot of his doctrines are not different than some group out there is using them. But when he when he's going to the Godhead, that's where you see the difference. And and basically, he's ostracized himself from Trinity and oneness altogether because he he said over and over again, "I'm not oneness." And and when you really study about what he believes about the Godhead, you realize he he's really not oneness. What they really believe. And then another statement he made was. Eventually, which ostracized him altogether from the Trinitarian side, was that Trinitarianism is of the devil, and he uh, concluded that with "Thus saith the Lord." So that's pretty strong. Uh, but you know, the way I look at things now is, as I've studied this, you know, there's a lot of truth in what the. If you really read about Trinitarian doctrine, you know, it, it's really not much different than oneness, because <laughs> they don't believe in three beings. Uh, the actual the actual wording used is essence. You know, there it's the same essence. You you can't see God as that spirit, so you don't see Father, Son, Holy Spirit in that essence. But yet they are there in the fact that God has a role as Father, He has a role as Word or Son, and then the Holy Spirit has a role. And and so that's and there's more to it than that, but that's kind of simplified. But yeah, that's they don't believe in three gods for sure. Um, so, and also another point I'll make is that as far as Brother Branham uh, put the dividing line at water baptism and Trinitarianism as being, if you can't accept what I believe, then you've, you're not with me. But, and you're not in the bride, for instance, you don't have what we have, that's something different. But when you look at 
the logic of that, um, all the millions of Christians all down through the ages believe different things. Uh, and today I, I find many Christians and all these organizations that are good people, they're Christians. So God is not going to not let them be a part of the bride because they didn't baptize the exact same way that, that the message baptizes. You know, they're part of the bride as much as the message is, if, if message is at all. So, so I'm not divisive. If I, I'm more or less drawing a circle around my brothers, you know, once again, you know, whereas in the message, I would, you know, have my distance from them and keep my distance. Now I'm, I'm not that way anymore. You know, I can fellowship with them once again. It's, it's a great feeling. It, it's a freedom. When, when you get there, it's, it's such a freedom that you feel, man, you're giving people grace. Like I heard in your last podcast, uh, it's a John Bear, uh, in your last podcast, he says, you got to give yourself some grace. And, and that's what the gospel does. It's a gospel of grace right. and, and mercy. And so we're not quick to condemn others because they're not dressing to the standard we think they're, they're supposed to be dressed as, or, you know, they're have to be led by the Holy Spirit the same way we do. We may have come further along, but they're still my brother and sister in Christ if they're trusting Christ. So, so yeah, uh, we all need to draw our circle a little bigger than we've had it in the past. So this is kind of leading into the next little subject here in my book. This is chapter four. But um, it, if, if people don't realize it in, in the Sardis church age, if you read the Sardis church age, you'll find uh, this continuum of salvation, I call it. And it almost puts William Branham's belief into universal universalism. It almost is like everybody can be saved in the end, even though they didn't, they didn't believe in Jesus Christ, they didn't accept the gospel, they're going to be saved in the end. Because the way he, he puts this is that he puts there's a salvation for the bride, there's a salvation for the, you know, the non-elect, or I guess the foolish virgin, and he even goes so far as to say this, is there salvation for those that never believed in Christ, never heard the gospel, but they may have gave a cup of cold water to a bride. They were good to the bride, good to the brethren. He's now taking the uh, belief in the gospel out of the picture. Is that, well, you really don't have to believe the gospel anymore. Now all you have to do is do something good for the bride. So if you can find a bride member and I can give them some money I can help them do this or help them do that. God's going to see that in the end and, and grant me access into heaven. Uh, and that's totally different from the Word of God and what it says. Now you're 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 opening the door even wider. And so if you read the Sardis Church Age, you'll find that. So I, I point that out in my my book here. Now he's got a continuum of salvation that's not found in Scripture. It's interesting because we um, I've started a new series with Steve Montgomery. <clears throat> And we're talking about the influences of Gnosticism, esoteric uh, beliefs, all of the different pagan ideas that converged into what he calls the converging apostasy. And one of the key figures that we have introduced into our research, ironically, is Aleister Crowley. And, you know, I said at the beginning of this podcast, if you want to understand the pure evil that is in your doctrine, study the bad guys. Well, Aleister Crowley is a person that I have extensively studied, believe it or not. I don't talk about it much because people would freak out. This is the man who they claim was purely, he was the devil's representative, some will say. <clears throat> but he published this book, 
that was called the Book of the Law. And he, he essentially was founding a new religion and quote unquote new, I should say. He was just merging all of these esoteric, these Gnostic ideas, Jewish mysticism, creating something that was so outlandish that it gained him popularity in, in my opinion, just he was out for money. <clears throat> but in the book of the law, the final statement is, there is no law beyond do what thou wilt. And if you think about William Branham's doctrine of, like his doctrine, be kind to the bride, this doctrine simply states that these people can do whatever it is that they want. They can be, they can accept Jesus or not, but if they're kind to the bride, they'll have a place in heaven. In other words, William Branham says very clearly, do what thou wilt, <laughs> which goes all the way back to <laughs> Aleister Crowley. And I recently have, I've recently started publishing some of the thoughts that I have collected about Aleister Crowley while working with Steve, but there is now a page on my website of Aleister Crowley. And specifically, I'm looking at the Christian identity framework that William Branham used for his serpent seed doctrine and his, oh, what did he call it, celestial being, celestial bodies. <clears throat> William Branham had this very, very heretical teaching that we in the human form have a celestial being, a celestial body <laughs> out there, right? And when the UFO craze hit, he says that basically there's, he said one of these days this UFO will sweep down and take us into heaven. That's how the rapture will be, he says. Well, when you compare the thoughts that William Branham has about how these celestial bodies work, in fact, I'll just read you a quote. He's talking on mother, at Mother's Day. He's saying, and when I think of them standing yonder, our loved ones, our mothers, kindreds, our friends, to see them in their immortal bodies, their celestial bodies watching their character, seeing how they conduct themselves with that sweetness and quietness, to see them standing in the likeness of the Lord Jesus. The celestial being, the celestial body, was a key concept for Branham's manifested sons of God. And... If you think of, so Aleister Crowley in the book of the law, he says the unveiling company of heaven, every man and every woman is a star. In other words, they're a celestial body. When you compare the teachings of Aleister Crowley with some of the key components of what we called the message, you find that the message was based on Jewish mysticism, esoteric knowledge. And, and in effect, you could call Aleister Crowley a grandfather of sorts to the message. Well, that's going to be a very interesting uh, trail of thought and research to, to delve into there. I, I can say in my recent study of the Godhead, of what the message teaches is that it, it really downplays Jesus Christ. It uh, puts Jesus in the mind of God like the bride is, as a thought or an attribute that actually came forth, was born. So except for Jesus being a special son that came out of God in the beginning— but still he was born. So so there is a beginning uh, of Jesus Christ or, or the Son, because Brother Branham always said sons have beginnings. That which is eternal never had a beginning. So he's saying, basically he's saying Jesus Christ had a beginning. Now that's yes. very contrary to the fact that, you know, God has always eternally existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or the Word. It was there with God in the beginning. 
But he's saying now that the word came out from God and that was the son. So it had a beginning. And and what he actually goes further to say, and I won't, that's, that's going to be in my new book. Uh, I'll give a few things about it. But is that the bride was also in him at the beginning. And that's why people say things like, I came from God, I go back to God. Uh, I always was eternal. I always had eternal life. Uh, I just had to recognize my day and its message, or I had the light had to shine on me to do whatever God did in regenerating me. So it kind of bypasses the gospel in that respect, because the gospel teaches that we were in depravity. We were dead, and we actually had to be resurrected by God. Not that we were always had eternal life and came from God, and we're here just waiting for the light to strike us. So that there's a very different teaching between true Christianity and the message in that respect. And I think you're getting into it with your studies there on these esoteric things. And it's only been recently that I've really thought about, there's been so much said by uh, Tim Krauss about the uh, Zodiac. And he talks a lot about him saying one of the Bibles was the Zodiac uh, and also the pyramid. I mean, that's pretty far out. And that gets into that uh, occult realm. And one thing I wanted to mention is that if you go back to Gordon Lindsay's wife, when she wrote in her diaries, she even said in her diaries that some of the things that he believed were occultic. You know, some of the things that he actually believed. And even Baxter said the things that were happening in the meetings were borderline psychic. You know, I believe he was being nice, you know, and I believe that those people uh, like Gordon Lindsay and Ern Baxter kind of directed him in a way so it could be palatable to Christians, so it could appeal to the Christian audiences. But behind the scenes, you may have had some occultic things really going on. Oh, absolutely. And those things tie back. Actually, it ties back to what I said with Crowley. So Crowley, as you know, was in England. And there was this movement called British Israelism that came into the United States. Well, it combined with what was called Anglo-Saxonism. There are two different movements. British Israelism is the notion that the lost ten tribes of Israel emerged in the British Isles, and so they were the true children of Israel. Uh, You know, this was before the nation of Israel was established, right? That came into America, as did this Anglo-Saxonism. Anglo-Saxonism is the notion that the Anglo-Saxon people are the— similar to our white supremacy, they were the superior race, essentially— when those two merged, they they came into into the United States, and there was formed the Anglo-Saxon Federation. Gordon Lindsay spoke at multiple of these conferences of the British Israelism and the Anglo-Saxonism. One of the key components of this, and it, again, it came straight out of England, likely influenced by Aleister Crowley, was the notion that the zodiac, the the stars were a roadmap describing the timeline of events leading to the end of days. As such, were a Bible written of old. And the same thing with the Great Pyramid of Giza. They said that the distance from the, the pathways that goes down into the king's chamber, there, there are apparently some imperfections in the leveling as it goes down. And these bumps... I think one of them, they said the great financial crisis leading up to the um, fall of the stock market, 
they said that this was one of these bumps in this roadmap, and therefore we can estimate that the world will end on such and such a date, and therefore the Bible of old was also the pyramids. So all of this pyramidology, zodiac knowledge, it all came out of this weird mess, which was heavily influenced by Aleister Crowley. Yeah, that's really interesting there. Uh, and, and as I was studying all these things, I realized, I believe, you know, that I put in my book here, it shows what a shallow understanding I think Brother Branham had in the scriptures. Uh, his understanding was shallow in the fact that he didn't go deeply into the scriptures. He would he would read it kind of the way he wanted to read into it. And I, I'll give an example. And this this goes along to support his three-stage salvation approach or the fact that you've got to be baptized correctly to have the Holy Spirit. If you go to Acts 19, uh, I put a chapter in my book on that. <clears throat> he he always in the message, if, if you always listen to what he says about Acts 19, he says, those disciples there, and because the Bible says they're disciples, but he says they were good Baptist people. So so his shallow reading of the scripture just assumed that they were already believers in Jesus Christ. Because it's, it's very, if you don't take the scriptures in context as a whole, that's what causes you to get out there on these these limbs, you know, that's not, not, not correct. Uh, it is true they were disciples, but they were disciples of John. So... The, they only knew the baptism baptism of John. So after Pentecost, they had not heard about Jesus Christ and were baptized because of their belief in Jesus Christ. So obviously, they couldn't have the Holy Spirit because they weren't even believing in Jesus yet. But 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 William Branham makes the assumption that because the Bible says Apollos was mighty in the Scriptures and was preaching Christ, he assumed that he made this big assumption that he had already preached Christ to those believers on Acts 19 that, that Paul came across in Ephesus. But Apollos, you know, had to be straightened out by Aquila and Priscilla for the way of God more perfectly. So sure, Apollos was preaching at one point, but wasn't preaching Christ at one point. He was preaching, you know, how great God was and the, the mighty God, but not about Christ. So they, they showed him the way of God more perfectly. But the Bible doesn't say that Apollos went and preached to these disciples at Ephesus. And it's very clear because they say we're disciples of John. If if they had been preached to by Apollos, they would have been already been baptized correctly, right? And they would already 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 said to Paul, Hey, we, we believe in Jesus Christ. We were baptized by Apollos who preached Christ to us, but no. They said, We only know baptism of John. Well, Branham makes the assumption that they were already Christian believers and just hadn't been baptized correctly, and so therefore they need to be baptized over in the name of Jesus Christ, and now the Holy Spirit come. So that's just a big example of how he took a very shallow understanding to sway, uh, I guess, to push it toward his belief in the way he's teaching it in that three-stage salvation. And that's how he could focus on baptism has to be said in the name of Jesus, or otherwise you don't have the Holy Spirit, or it's not valid, this and that, uh, which is just not true. You know, so I, I point that out in that particular chapter. Uh, so I think that's very important to know. Exactly. And, you know, these were ideas that were nothing new to William Branham. I'll never forget when I first came across the name G.T. Haywood and started studying early Oneness Pentecostal. Haywood was an African-American Pentecostal from Indianapolis 
who he, he largely contributed to the spreading of oneness Pentecostalism before William Branham ever did. And he published a track called The Victims of the Flaming Sword in response to the widespread effect that this had on American religion, wherein black pe- people with black skin and people with white skin were mingling together, <laughs> they called it, among the white supremacists. He was causing a, a racial integration of religion. And Roy Davis and uh, Colonel William Joseph Simmons formed, uh, apparently in retaliation, the, the Knights of the Flaming Sword. And as you know, Davis goes into Indianapolis and or into Indiana through Louisville, Kentucky. <clears throat> well, f- the surprise for me was that Oneness Pentecostalism preexisted Branham because we were trained to believe that Branham brought this as one of the divine truths that this that they're all baptizing incorrectly and it <laughs> it's really funny when you think about it it all comes down to one pivotal word the one that's Pentecostal is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ William Branham says no it must be the Lord Jesus Christ and when I realized this I realized that it was nothing more than an incantation because his, in essence, his entire theology of baptism was that if they didn't use the one word, Lord, then the person was actually being baptized incorrectly and in effect going to hell, if you follow it out to William Branham's logical conclusion. So the, the saying of the word by the person who is doing the baptism becomes an incantation over the person being baptized. That's true, and that's why I say... Over and over now, I know there's no magic in the words, but what he's saying is, you know, there's something in the words because his message was all about the spoken word, right? So it was about the words that you speak. But I think it's a heart attitude and, and what you're coming on the basis of. Your, your belief is from the heart. And and the act of baptism is just an outward act. It's not, there's nothing magical going to happen in baptism. It's just an obedience to the word. So... The words that you say, you know, you you ought to say, I baptize you on the authority of Jesus Christ or in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit or in the name of Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ. Even in the New Testament, they were using different formulas. Nobody used the same formula. So to, to try to point it down to say, you got to say this, this and this, otherwise it's not valid. You know, it just doesn't hold water. It's just not scriptural. And, and so you can't really hold people over the flames of hell because they didn't get baptized correctly. That's what he's doing. And that's that's where the fear comes in. Um, so another chapter I put in here, and this goes along with his his uh, teaching on uh, how the denominationals will be treated in, in the tribulation and so forth. And, and again, what he's teaching is a very shallow view of Scripture because you don't read, you're not saying everything Scripture is saying. And it's with the foolish and wise virgin. And I've even heard, you know, the churches I was in preach about this. And and they go so far to say that the foolish virgin had a partial atonement because they, they don't want to say, well, the denominational people can never be saved or aren't saved. So what they do is they, they, they say something very unscriptural by saying, well, they've got a partial atonement. And that, that's not even in the scripture. How, how can, You either got all the atonement or you got none of it. I mean, there's not half the blood is yours and half is not. It just doesn't happen that way. But I've heard it straight from the mouth of message preachers that 
and, and even uh, I think Brother Branham even mentioned it that they have a partial atonement. They don't have the full atonement. Well, that's that's not scriptural. But in the foolish and wise virgin, he likes to use that passage to allude to that to that belief, because he'll say the foolish were believers. They were, you know, they were virgins. They were bride material, but they just weren't in the bride. Well, if you read in the scriptures, Jesus tells them in the end, he says, I never, I never knew you. So if the foolish virgin is actually the denominational that's going to be saved in the end because they went through the tribulation, Jesus couldn't have made that statement that I never knew you. You know, to say you never knew somebody means, you know, you're outside the kingdom of God altogether. Even though they call them a virgin, you know, you can't interpret that to say, well, they were part of the church. So that's that's just what I point out in that chapter. Uh, you see, and another one in the same manner as the 70 disciples, he liked to say that the 70 disciples that Jesus called to go out and do miracles, uh, to do ministry, to preach Christ is coming. Uh, he liked to say that they eventually turned away and rejected him and his message and walked away. Well, if you read the Bible carefully again, and I, I explained this in my chapter, and I won't go into detail here except to say that Jesus was speaking to disciples in John 6, 66, uh, about except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you, then the disciples, the disciples said, you know, this is a hard saying, who can say it? And so it says many of his disciples walked away. Well, if you think about who disciples are, they were the multitudes surrounding Jesus, so it wasn't just the 70. But to, to put support into his message and the fact that you can, if you don't listen to his message, you're lost, and, and that, that gives credence to those that do turn away from the message because they realize how, how false it is, that they can be pointed to, well, they're like the 70 disciples that walked away. Uh, you once believed, and now you're rejecting the message because you can't stomach the, the words of the prophet. Well, the Bible doesn't say they were the 70 disciples that walked away. It says they were just disciples. So he takes a great leap, you know, that's not in the Scripture. And, and that's how he twists Scripture again and again to support his ministry and to bring everything back to him and to try to support what he's saying. Uh, but it's just not what the Scripture is saying. Uh, and even another one, uh, I detail in there about Malachi 4 or 5. Now, this was something that caught me. Years ago, I would I believe Malachi 4 or 5 did speak of some prophet to come. And that's why they'll tell you, message believers will ask you, say, well, if he's not the one, then who is the one coming? Well, I think we've already got that answer in Scripture when it says in Hebrews that God has spoken to us in these last days by his son and the law and the prophets were until John. That's the whole answer is that we're not looking for another to come. Even John said, you know, ask Jesus, are we looking for another to come or, or is he the one? Well, he was the one. He said, go tell him what you're seeing. So we're really not looking for another one to come. And and people can can get this in their head because of uh, what's pointed out in Luke one seventeen. It appears that, you know, the actual words being used, uh, turn the hearts of the children to their, the fathers to the children. And the, the second part of that prophecy, turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, doesn't seem to be in Luke one seventeen. So that left the door open for a, a second fulfillment or a, a double meaning for that scripture to be fulfilled at a later time. But actually, if you look at how the scripture is actually written in Luke one seventeen, 
it actually has a twofold prophecy in there because it says right after the turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the scripture says, turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Well, who are the disobedient? They're the children. Uh, over and over again, scriptures describe children as being disobedient. And over and over again, just wisdom, the wisdom of the fathers, it's Abraham is our father. Uh, so John the Baptist was turning people back to the father Abraham, to the, the faith of the fathers, because God in the beginning just wanted Israel to believe him and to rely on his grace and not works to make it in. He provided the sacrifice, but they got caught up in the works and, and, and Israel became a, a nation of, I've got to do all the law. I've got to keep it perfectly. I've got to do everything or otherwise I'm, I'm out of the picture. And, and that's carried over into the message is that you've got to keep the law, a lot of things in the law. However, you're not keeping all of it, but you're keeping the things that's important to, to, to William Branham in the law. But, um, but that's never what God intended. God intended to rely on his grace. He's provided a sacrifice. You just rely on his grace to get you in. And, and then you live for him. And then you're constantly, he's sanctifying you constantly. So anyway, that's Malachi 4. And I put that in the book. If, if people would just read it with an open mind, they can see clearly there was no major prophet to come, you know, after Jesus Christ. You know, for me, where it really ends up, if you take all of these doctrines and you study the strategy behind them, there was a strategy in their introduction into the ministry, and that strategy was to divide and sever the body of Christ. Branham openly says this. He says, this is the apostate church. I'm trying to sever myself from them. Be ye separate is one of the phrases that they use in the message. And the end result is they were trying to sever the body of Christ. And you and I both know the scriptures that describe what what that is referring to. I, you know, when you talk about the book of Malachi, it took me a while to grasp this. And it wasn't until I think it was in the Baptist seminary. I was talking to a guy. Um, I mentioned earlier I was you know, in the seminary quite a bit, <clears throat> just studying and learning. I think it was in there that the person was talking about the way that the scrolls were developed and how, you know, it, it was a scroll. It wasn't a book with chapters and numbers and verses. And <clears throat> it, it was literally meant to be read from start to finish. And that concept, I'll be honest, it took me a long time to grasp because we were taught to take a single verse out of context and make that verse <laughs> again almost like an incantation that verse had power and that verse was separate from the collection of other verses that made up the entire scroll and the very first line of that scroll is this is a word that came to israel not to the gentiles and it's talking about <clears throat> you know the things that are coming which as you said jesus fulfilled them all if you know and understand the scriptures but taking the aspect of having verse numbers and chapter numbers out you really can't point this in the way that the message points it they try to say chapter three was for john the baptist chapter four was <laughs> it's so absurd but for william branham but this was a scroll there were no chapter divisions and I think the, the hardest thing for me to understand was simply the word great and terrible. 
because I heard sermon and sermon and sermon at, at how the great and terrible thing, great and dreadful, the great and dreadful day of the Lord is coming. They said that can't be Jesus. But if you go back and you study the language itself, great and terrible is the English translation of a word that was so much more complex than our English language has a word to describe. So it was literally a word trans translated as great and terrible. The combination of all of these things for me was that Malachi is in fact talking about Jesus Christ. And like you said, the verse, the, the law and the prophets were until John and now the, you know, the kingdom of heaven is preached. We weren't looking for a prophet, but they tried to twist everything out of context to say that we were. Yeah, that's true. And <clears throat> it shows that um, you really have to be careful in studying the scripture because I've, I've learned, and I'm still a novice. I'm really not expert or anything because uh, I've not had a great amount of seminary education, so I don't have any, any at all. But uh, context is everything. And there's a, there is a correct way to study the scriptures and to keep it in context because like you said, they pull scriptures out of context and, and maybe pull one here and it totally, it totally just alters the meaning of it altogether. So we just have to be very careful not to do that. A uh, couple of other things I'll mention that I have in my book, and uh, it's talking about a lion tongue. I mean, if you read all the scriptures about what God said and what Paul said about lion, you know, people give... William Branham excuses for lying because they'll point back to Abraham and say, well, Abraham told a lie, you know, but, but Abraham told a half-truth to save his life. And I don't think uh, William Branham's life was on the line uh, to where he was going to be killed by anybody for what he was telling. But, uh, you know, P Paul said, uh, let's see if I can see any scriptures here. He says, uh, of course, Jesus said, if you're lying, you're of your father, the devil, right? Uh, Paul says, you know, the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth I lie not. So Paul was very particular. He said, now the things I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Uh, Psalm says, concerning God, it says, I hate and abhor lying. Oh, no, that's what David said. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Uh, Psalm 119, remove from me the way of lying. Uh, deliver my soul, Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. I mean, six things the Lord hate, seven are abomination. A lying tongue is one of those. I mean, over and over again, Paul says in Colossians, lie not one to another, saying that you've put off the old man. So so if you're living in the old man, you're, you're, you can be lying. Uh, you wouldn't mind tell, telling lies. And so to give William Branham a pass on his lying is a serious thing. Uh, and there's multiple, multiple examples of dishonesty. You know, even in the stories that he tells about how certain miraculous events took place, they didn't happen as he said, and multiple witnesses that maybe wrote about it was totally different than what he said. One concerning the, the boy that was killed by the car. Uh, another one about the cloud in Arizona, totally made up. Healing of Congressman Upshaw was another one. Uh, the baptismal service, how he told that. Uh, the first encounter with Pentecostal people. We know he was a Pentecostal before he encountered his Mishawaka meetings. Uh, just over and over again. And so I point out that lying is really not, we can't excuse that. In other words, you just can't do it. And then 
when you get to the vision of 1952, which I wrote about really carefully in this book, uh, The Desperate Prophet, and how he used a lie over and over again to make you believe it was the truth. You know, that was done by the Nazis. Uh, it's a study been done on it called the illusory truth effect. If you tell a lie over and over again, as if it were the truth, you're going to start believing it yourself. So I, I can imagine he really believed these things himself because he told them over and over again. But the, the research proves that a lot of what he said was not true. So for the angel to come down and tell him all those things in that vision that didn't come to pass, it comes down to the angel was not telling the truth either. And that's a very serious thing because I think there's only one type of angel that would not tell the truth, and they're the ones on the opposite side of where we want, we want to be. They're the demons. So that that says a lot, and I put the whole chapter in on that. Uh, and then the last couple of things I'll point out, maybe before we wrap this up, I think they're important to go along with your uh, thoughts on how he preached serpent seed and what that was all about. Was well, his stance on uh, interracial marriage and also illegitimate children. You know, he was definitely against the interracial marriage of uh, of black people with white people. But, you know, he doesn't really condemn other races marrying other races. But there's and, and really, we shouldn't be referring to human beings as races because we're all one race. We're the human race. We all came from uh, Noah's three sons, <laughs> which were all human. They weren't beast from the serpent. Um, and so. So really, that's how we have to look at the human race. And so marriage is a decision between a man and a woman to they love each other, no matter what color they are or what culture they are. They just have to go into the marriage knowing if there are different cultures, they've got to adapt to that. They've got to adapt to each other's families. But the, the bottom line is that they love and, and, and want to be, be together. So how can you condemn that? And even in the message ranks, you see it happening more and more. There's interracial marriage going on, so so really they don't believe their own message, or you know what are they going to say about that? Uh, it's, it's happening, and, and so that's that really needs to be dealt with. I mean, you've got preachers that will stand against it, and others that accept it. So there, there you go. You've got division in the message. Uh, the, the last thing I'll point out is the fate of illegitimate children. I wanted to read a quote. There was a question asked. In 64, about questions and answers. And this goes along with uh, you having to be in the thoughts of God before eternity to even be in the bride or to be saved, be in the bride of Christ. So they said, uh, Dear Brother Branham, if a baby is born out of wedlock, can the child ever be saved or go in the rapture? And he answers back, saved. Why, sure, I believe the child could be. He says the child can't help what's been done. That is true. But then it says, but I, about going in the rapture, he said, saved, I'd say yes, but in the rapture, it's a predestinated seed that goes in the rapture. And I cannot believe that adultery was a predestinated seed, you understand? So right there, he's not acknowledging that the blood of Jesus Christ can break every curse of the law that we were under. Uh, because Galatians, or I think it says, Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law, that the blessings of Abraham will come on those who believe. So it's not a matter of how you came into this world, because we all came on the same basis. We all came dead in our sins. 
it is on your basis of belief in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, it'll break every curse and that will put you in the bride of Christ. It will put you as an adopted son or daughter of God and you have to feel no shame about where you came from. But the message teaches that, uh, it teaches emphatically here that you cannot be in the bride of Christ if you did not come legitimately in wedlock. So right there he's written out, he's taken people out of the kingdom of God that were not born in holy uh, wedlock, say. But the Bible does not teach that. That's another departure from Scripture. The Scripture teaches that we were redeemed by the curse of the law. The curse of the law may have taken us out of the kingdom of Israel. Yeah, the illegitimate child had to stay out of the kingdom of Israel, but not out of God's kingdom. And not so they can have full rights as an adopted son, as a bride member. Everything is fully if they trust in the Lord Jesus. So that's just the last point I wanted to make uh, on that. Yeah, and it all goes back to a point we talked about earlier, false foundations. That's why I say you should study the bad guys, study their foundation, because the foundational teaching was, again, the two-seed bloodline and the fact that evil was introduced into the human race through the sexual union between Eve and the serpent, and therefore there is a racial heritage of good versus evil and this statement that you just read it's referring to that such that he is saying he is openly believing that your bloodline determines your eternal destination if you follow all of the paths out to their logical conclusion that's exactly where it leads you the the most interesting part about all of this I don't know if you've read it or not, but Peter Dyser's book, Legend of the Fall, he examined William Branham's family tree, and you find that he has the same problem in his own family tree. And whether he was aware or not, I can't say. I would say he likely was aware, but he himself is a, (laughs) a victim of his own false doctrine in that he himself can't go into the rapture based on his own family tree because he's he's preaching the serpent seed doctrine and he is claiming that the adultery of the previous generations is affected on the children and the sum of all of this you mentioned the lying for me i think that's the biggest key where do you draw the line william branham lied to the extent he invented bible verses and he repeated those Bible verses. I have them stuck in my head still. <laughs> I'll, I'll sometimes <clears throat> somebody asks me a question, and I have to be very careful that I don't repeat a Bible verse that he himself added to the Bible. And you know what the Bible says in the book of Revelation, whosoever adds to or takes away. One of which he says, he says this many times, but I chose specifically because of the title. In his 1955 sermon, The Seal of the Antichrist, Branham says that we're bo- the, he says specifically the Bible said we're born in sin, shaped into iniquity, come into the world speaking lies. That last part isn't a Bible verse. The first part is a Bible verse, and it's talking about you know the righteous people. The second part is talking about the evil people coming to the world speaking lies in a separate verse. So you have two verses, one talking about good one talking about evil. William Branham mixed them together and invented a new Bible verse to basically explain away the fact that he's lying so many times. 
And he said this repeatedly over and over until <clears throat> I, I grew up. I, I think I'm almost certain I heard my parents say this. Whenever somebody said something that wasn't true, they said, well, you come into the world speaking lies. The Bible said so. That's, that's an invented Bible verse. So the end result of all of this, if you examine the foundation, it was a platform built from the wrong false theology from very, very sinister figures in American and English history. And the false doctrine is based on lies. So the sum of all of this is you have to ask yourself the question, was this a movement by God or was this a movement by Satan? And I'm not going to answer that question. I'll let the listeners answer it. But I have an opinion, and um, I think you can probably guess what my opinion was. So it's very good to have you on here, John. If you could hold your book up and tell us again the title and where we can get it. Okay, this is available on eBay, and I also think I have it on Amazon. But it's called Defending the Truth, Comparing William Branham's Doctrine with Scripture. And I also have another little booklet. This one will clearly outline a false prophecy of the Africa-India vision in 1952. I think this is this this would be the linchpin, if I know of any linchpin, that would bring someone out of the message or should if they follow the Scripture, in that prophets cannot prophesy falsely, according to Deuteronomy 18. Uh, I put that in this case, he became a desperate prophet because he prophesied this great vision that took three hours to occur, which was uh, confirmed by his wife, his uh, mother that came down and said the Lord told her to come down. And even someone in town who was a salesman there knew something had happened. And and then yet it still failed to come to pass. And you just can't explain this one away. But it's called uh, his use of the illusory truth effect to support false prophecy. Well, after the vision failed, uh, he had to make up some excuses for why it failed and then also begin to proclaim uh, reasons why it came to pass. You know, he, he said one time it didn't come to pass, and then another time he said it was my greatest meeting I ever had, and I had <laughs> 500,000 people in there. Yes. And he kept saying that over and over to the people of the nation. Now, now this gets into something that uh, he says he never took offerings, but if you go back and look at all the sermons in 1952 about him going to India, when he talks about this prophecy, he talks about offerings over and over again. I thank you for your, I need your offerings. I, we're, we're saving up to go to India. But he, he, he took up offerings quite oh, yeah. a bit, all the time. So he had to go around the nation after this vision failed and account to these people <laughs> to, of a thing. And you know what's peculiar about this in this vision or in this, he said 500,000 people were in the meetings and he only could point to one healing maybe two that occurred in all these meetings all together. Now, how does that happen when you got 500,000 people in attendance? And he said, there's a mass of humanity and he can only mention the blind man being healed. And I think another boy, a deaf boy hearing that was it. So that tells you, that tells a lot right there too. Indeed. And it's very interesting. So I'm very glad to have you on here, John. And if you are interested in learning more, you can get John's books. I'll link them into the description so people can find them easily. And if you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can also check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org. 
for an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals. You can also read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. 